0: To the city. Yeah. So, um, last week we explored, uh, well last week you were drunk and you're at a party, you're drunk, you're passed out and somebody, does anybody remember? <laughs> you, were, <laughs> you were drunk and you're at a party and you passed out and somebody uh, went up to you while you were passed out and they sewed into your coat a priceless jewel and then you um, woke up and you uh, went through the next couple decades of your life um, searching, really searching, um, to make your way through a world that didn't seem to offer you exactly what you needed and um, you struggled and then one day you came across a complete stranger and they looked you up and down and said, "What? you look so... Uh, poverty stricken, and that you're, you're really working so hard. Um, at such and such a party, so many years ago, at so and so's house, I saw you passed out and drunk. So I went up to you and I sewed in your coat uh, a priceless jewel. So just look inside your coat and there's this jewel and you don't have to work so hard. And this parable in the Lotus Sutra, which is a text we've been studying for a couple months now, um, talk is is really making reference to the Arhats. So these are the perfectly enlightened Buddhas who, I don't know about you, but if you are working to become perfectly enlightened and then you got perfectly enlightened, would your habit of working to get perfectly enlightened just go away? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. And so it's kind of like having a priceless jewel already sewn in your coat that maybe these arhats who are perfect disciples of the buddha um, became buddhas but actually um, it was kind of a meager practice and there was still something much more um, um, there was more to flower uh... if only they could realize um, the Lotus Sutra teaching. The problem as many of you are noticing of realizing the teachings of the Lotus Sutra is that we still haven't heard the teachings of the Lotus Sutra and we're in chapter 10 or 11 and um, we keep hearing how the Sutra is going to be preached or how it was preached many glacial ages ago but we never get to hear the Lotus Sutra until now because what's happened is the Buddha has been in Samadhi the earth has been shaking and it's been raining Unlike
1: this, um,
0: in the Lotus Sutra, it rains three different kinds of flowers. Um, As it does for all of us in the two days it's been sunny in the past two months. Um, Anyways, uh, we're in poverty and um, we don't realize that we just need to look inside our own coat. It's like the fact that reality is right here, and we still can't see it. There's a joke like this. If you, if you wanted to hide something that was the most valuable thing you had, where would you hide it? And the answer is in the present moment. Nobody would find it. You just put it right in front of your nose, and nobody will find it there. So, um, Philip Whalen who is a, a poet who I adore, um, wrote many poems on the Lotus Sutra. Maybe just some background about Philip Whelan. I know some of you know my adoration of Philip Whalen. Some of you don't. In every scene, whatever the scene is, there's always the person who inspires the scene who never gets any notoriety. So in the beat scene in San Francisco, Philip Whelan was the person who inspired so many writers. Um... Last January, the weather was like this. (laughs) And uh, I was in San Francisco, and I went a day early, and I I took my son uh, to Philip Whelan. Well, Philip Whelan died uh, over a decade ago. And so I took my son, who was six at the time, uh, to Philip Whelan's house. Um, When Shinru Suzuki, just before he died in 1971, he appointed a successor named Issan Dorsey. Issan Dorsey was a drag queen in the 50s. So could you imagine somebody driving through the southern U.S. in the 50s as a drag queen? (laughs) So he's seen a lot. And it was very controversial. This Japanese Zen teacher appointed a drag queen as a successor. And the drag queen went and bought a house with some donations in the Castro District in San Francisco on Hartford Street. And um, at that time, uh, men were dying of AIDS. And so he basically created a center, not a center, it's kind of a rundown house, where people could come and die. And that was, his, that was the way he taught Zen. And he kind of, you know, became obviously the black sheep of the Zen community. Um, And upstairs, the house was filled with men who were dying. And in the basement, they built a Zendo, where every morning they got up and they did their practice. Uh, So I went there, because that's where Philip Whalen lived. And I thought, I want to see where Philip Whalen lived, you know. And Issan Dorsey died, you know, right after he opened the place. Um, and so Philip Whalen went to live there to take care of things. Um, so I went to Philip Whalen's room, and well, actually I went in, and they said, "Oh, would you like to see Phil's room?" Yeah, you know, he's been dead a dozen years, you know. I said, "What do you mean, Phil's room?" Oh, yeah, we just—you you can go see where Phil lived, you know. So I went up, and my son was so bored, you know, so they got him <laughs> to just play with gongs. And, and there was this bookshelf, so I said, "Oh, well." is this his bookshelf? Like as a joke, oh yeah, that's his bookshelf, just like he left it. So I started going through the books and inside the books were like photographs that Allen Ginsberg took of him and all these letters to him from Gary Snyder and it was like this archive. Do you know what you have here? Oh, it's Phil's books. And uh, so anyways, they have an archive in Hartford Street at the Zen Center that uh, I think still because Phil is not really known as a, really important American poet, um, that I think the archive has never really became an. Ar- you have to be a well known person to have an archive and he wasn't well known enough yet, but hopefully that will change. So anyways, he wrote a lot of poems on the Lotus Sutra. Here's one about the chapter that we've just studied. This is written in 1964. I got drunk at your house. You put that diamond in my shirt pocket. How am I supposed to know? Laying there in the drunk tank, strange town, don't nobody know, get out of jail at last, you say? You already spent that diamond? How am I gonna know? (laughs) Should I read it again? You didn't answer, but I'm gonna read it again. (laughs) I got drunk at your house, you put that diamond in my shirt pocket? How am I supposed to know? Laying there in the drunk tank, strange town, don't nobody know. Get out of jail at last, you say. You already spent that diamond. How am I going to know? He's so good. So. Anyways, I noticed this interesting thing about the way he wrote the poems in the Lotus Sutra is that every poem in the Lo- about the Lotus Sutra has in it the previous story in the Lotus Sutra. So the strange town, don't nobody know, is the Phantom City. And then his poem about the Phantom City has the predictions in it. And I just noticed that today, which I found really interesting. So So we all have this um, jewel uh, in our own heart. And um, in a way, what is this eternal thing? What is this jewel that we all have? And maybe what it is that we all share is uh, this uh, ability uh, to be imaginative. And if the Lotus Sutra is teaching us anything, it's that you can't ever get out of your viewpoint. And so the only thing you can do to escape your viewpoint uh, is to multiply your viewpoint. And the only way you can do this is with your imagination. And this is the trouble with imagination, is that if you don't learn how to work with your imagination, then it just works on you. And you're just, you know, um, a puppet. Um, and and this, this imagination, or we, we've been talking about the storyteller. Um, the storyteller is that place in us that's resilient. And I think in meditation circles, the storyteller usually gets a bad rap. Um, the storyteller is this this term, asmita, or Ahankara, literally the eye maker. So that part of the mind that superimposes onto experience a story. And we've spent years talking about I think that's all we talk about, actually, is the storyteller. But the Lotus Sutra seems to flip it and show us that actually it's our ability to imagine that is what constantly recreates us from moment to moment. And this is a good thing. So if there's tragedy, if there's war, if there's a tsunami, this is how we partly how we heal, is we can reimagine. And I found it really depressing hearing from a scholar last week uh, at the Monk Center who studies Japan. How first of all, some of you have been following what's been going on in Japan at the Fukushima Daiichi plant and how it's still totally out of control. Uh, 17,000 people are dead in Japan now, and 17,000 are missing. Uh, 92% of the people who have died were over the age of 65, and 95% of them died through drowning. Uh, A quarter of the people who stayed in that first week uh, at the power plant are dead already from radioactivity. And um, so Japan is also 17 trillion dollars in debt. So this is a country, for those of you who might know, that has done the most research about the relationship between nuclear power and earthquakes. Of course, right? They have 53 nuclear power plants left, every single one of them on a fault line. So they've done their work. They're over-engineered plants, and yet every single um, uh, um, strategy to save the plant failed. Right? And of course, uh, in, in uh, the Fukushima plant, there were five different uh, backup systems, batteries and so on. Everything failed. So anyways, this, I heard this scholar give a talk about how uh, when there is devastation in a city, and he studied cities all over the world, and an earthquake comes or a tsunami or war, even though all the businesses get wiped out, the land ownership doesn't change. So the landowners still have the pattern of the city, and that the city always gets built back to the old pattern of the values of the landowners when they bought the land, because it's an investment. So actually, ingenuity or innovation in a city doesn't come from devastation. The city tends to get rebuilt to the old pattern. And the problem with Japan being $17 trillion in debt is all the money that they can raise for something innovative is actually going to have to go to cleanup. Right? Not not to creating something new. And I found this so depressing. You know, this, uh, the, the, the sense that, you know... Over and over again, this kind of failure of our imagination uh, to rework um, the basics of a city. So anyways, I could go on, and I'm not going to. Um, But maybe the the storyteller or the uh, imaginative person in all of us is kind of like the phoenix for all of us when we experience tragedy And maybe this is the jewel in the pocket. Maybe this is our jewel that's been sewn in there. And what I like about the story is we don't know who sewed it in there. Mm -hmm. And yet that person comes back to remind us. So last week we had some interesting discussion about this. And a few of you sent me really good emails telling me your stories about somebody sewing a jewel into your coat while you were basically unconscious. and um how you've spent it so but we're not going to go through that i don't know why i've talked so much about that because actually we're we're trying to get ahead to the next chapter here so i'm just going to read has anybody read this is anybody following along mike (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I saw one week, these were, books were everywhere, you know, and now, I don't know, they're not around anymore. Can you put up your hand if you've read this chapter on the stupa in the sky? Okay, good. So I'm just going to read it to you. It'd be really good if you read ahead, because then we can get into kind of a deeper layer of discussion, because, anyways, so next week is chapter 12. Uh, devadatta a great teaching on violence so at the time in the buddha's presence there was a tower adorned with the seven treasures 500 yojanas in height and 250 yojanas in width and depth it rose up out of the earth how how high is a yojana remember how long a yojana is the distance of The distance an army can walk in a day. So 500 yojanas tall. What was it? 250? Wide and 250 in depth. That's good engineering. That's amazing. Various kinds of... Does everybody know what a stupa is? No? A stupa is like a funerary... uh, uh, Well, it can be a sculpture. It can be all kinds of things. But usually it's round and it's enclosed and uh, you would put a corpse there um, and um, peop- it, it's like a massive gravestone, um, but all kinds of precious objects would be inside.
1: So this is a massive
0: stupa that comes out of the, out of the earth. Um, festoons of jewels hung down and 10,000 million jeweled bells were suspended from it. All force, can you feel this? <laughs> All four sides emitted a fragrance of temelpatra and sandalwood, and it pervaded the whole world. Its banners and canopies were made of seven treasures, namely gold, silver, lapis lazuli, seashell, agate, pearl, carnelian. It was so high that it reached the heavenly palaces of the four heavenly worlds. The gods of the Triastrishma, Heaven rain down heavenly mandara flowers. Uh, Trias Trishma, by the way, is a, it's an adjective. And it's just, it's not really, a, it's a really cool word because it's not a word. It's just taking the numerical number 33 and making it an adjective. Which I, I love. And there's a few of those in this chapter that are really wonderful. Um, so it's basically suggesting that there are 33 uh, heavenly worlds. And uh, some of you might know in the cosmology of the day, there were also 33 deities uh, that presided over the earth and human realms. So, and a deity in this sense is not like a god, it's like a perspective. So it's like you would meditate on a deity in order to see your life through that perspective. And each deity offers a different perspective. And each deity is in a different physical asana. So you go into that asana through visualization and then if you really feel it then you can uh, see your life uh, through that pattern. So each deity is a perspective. So it's kind of nice to know that it's only 33 possible perspectives. I mean mostly we only have like one. What we talked about uh, during the meditation workshop is how uh, we have mostly we can see about five different perspectives on a good day. see things through the past, through the present, what it can do for me, what it can't do for me, through greed, through sex, through family, through, you know, uh, whatever. But it's a lot to come up with 33 perspectives you could bring to any situation. And again, it's valuing this sense of imagination. That if you really want to uh, open up the heart and experience a situation with creativity and with compassion... Your imagination has to be alive for you to be able to see a perspective, uh, see a situation from 33 perspectives. So anyways, um, so this stupa raises up and pierces through the realm of these 33 perspectives. Okay, so there were dragons there, yakshas, gandharvas, asuras, garudas, kinmaras, maharagas, humans, non-human beings, assemblies of thousands, ten thousands, Thousands of millions offering all kinds of flowers, incense, necklaces, streamers, canopy, and music as alms to this treasure tower, paying the tower reverence, honor, and praise. At that time, a loud voice issued from the treasure tower. So, can you imagine this? So, right out of the ground, this tower bursts forth. It has all these jewels. It goes all the way up into the 33 heavens, um, which by the way surpasses Mount Meru, which is the holiest mountain on earth. The holiest mountain on earth is 800 yojanas high. Okay, so somehow, so it's saying here that even though this was 500 yojanas, because of all the jewels, it was higher than Mount Meru, which is kind of cool. At that time, a loud voice issued from the treasure tower speaking words of praise. Excellent, excellent Shakyamuni. You can take the great wisdom of equality to instruct all the bodhisattvas guarded and kept in mind by the Buddhas, the Lotus Sutra of the Wonderful Law. It is exactly as you say. You have expounded the truth. At that time, there was a Bodhisattva named Great Joy of Preaching. It's not such a good word. Great Joy of Preaching, who understood the doubts that were in the minds of all the heavenly and human beings and other beings of the world. He said to the Buddha, for what reason has this treasure risen up out of the earth? And why does this voice issue from its midst? Right. So there's always one person who, like Ananda was like this, like Something really big is happening, and there's always one person who can feel the doubt of everyone and so asks, you know well, why is this happening what, what's going on and um then the Buddha responds, Bodhisattva, great joy of preaching in the treasure tower is the complete body of a Buddha long ago an immeasurable an immeasurable thousand ten thousand. Million asankhya's of worlds to the east. Asankhya. Do you know what an is? Do you know what sankhya is? Sankhya Grant? It's a philosophy. It's a philosophy, but what does the word Sankya mean? It means to count. Right? Sankhya philosophy is about counting the nature of reality. It's probably why it fell out of favor. But the word asankhya means uh, immeasurable. You can't I, it's just fun knowing these names, you know. So Asankhya means you, you can't... When, when you want to tell someone you love them, you should say, you know, uh, with Asankya. You know, uncountable how much. You know. Anyways. Let me try this at home. Uh, of worlds to the east, in a land called Treasure Purity, there was a Buddha named Many Treasures. When this Buddha was originally carrying out the Bodhisattva way, he made a vow saying... If after I have become a Buddha and entered extinction, if he died, in the lands of the Ten Direction, if there's any place where the Lotus Sutra is preached, then my stupa, in order that I may listen to the sutra, will come forth and appear in that spot to testify to the sutra and praise its excellence. In other words, this Buddha says, even when I die... Uh, if somebody is preaching the Lotus Sutra, and it doesn't matter who it is, it's so powerful that a stupa will shoot out of the ground and will testify to the fact that this is the truth. So obviously it's not working because it doesn't have to be a Buddha, so here I am, we're preaching the Lotus Sutra together. Yeah. Um, But this is kind of what's so beautiful because If you think about it, you know, a stupa is uh, related to a funeral, something that has passed away. And simultaneously, it doesn't just float in the sky and come down from the heavens, it comes out of the earth. And maybe in a way, if you can open your heart uh, in stillness, then when you sit here and you are aware of the rain, uh, then you are outside of time. You're outside of this particular kalpa, this particular glacial age, And you can open up to the timelessness of time. And then this whole room becomes a stupa. It becomes a stupa where we uh, recognize that every raindrop is a jewel, that every siren that comes by is also sacred. And then our life suddenly might feel okay. Rather than this kind of misery we walk around in most of the time because it's raining and you know the day is not going how i want it to go so this is what i like about the stupa it comes out of the ground and this is a theme that really starts developing in the last half of the lotus sutra maybe another way of saying it is that the world is really like an eternal funeral always a funeral We think about mindfulness as waking up, but also mindfulness is kind of a practice of mourning. It's a practice of really clearly being able to let go. And so if each moment is kind of awakening as a birth, each moment's also a funeral for that moment that just passed away. And I think uh, sometimes in meditation practice, it's a lot easier to watch the rising of a thought than to watch this passing away. And so I think it takes a long time in meditation practice to be able to see not just a thought arising, uh, but also to see that same thought start to fall away, fall apart, and have enough concentration that you can watch the end of that before something else shows up. And this happens when we get quiet, when we get still. And it's a little bit like a funeral, isn't it? No? I don't know. Maybe you're drunk. Maybe you're the drunk person at the funeral who is not really open to what's going on and is just drinking it away. And um, then somebody from center of gravity comes to the funeral, sews in your coat a uh, jewel. Okay, we have to keep going. This is, a, this is a, a difficult chapter. Okay. At this time, the Bodhisattva, great joy of preaching, knowing the supernatural powers of the Buddha, spoke to the Buddha, saying, We wish to see the body of this Buddha. So there's a body inside this stupa. What does the Buddha's body look like? So the Buddha said, to the great joy of preaching bodhisattva, Many treasures Buddha has taken a profound vow, saying, When my treasure tower, in order to listen to the Lotus Sutra, comes forth into the presence of one of the Buddhas, If there should be those who wish me to show my body to the four kinds of believers, then let the various Buddhas who are emanations of that Buddha and who are preaching the law and the worlds in the ten directions all return and gather around the Buddha in a single spot. Only when that has been done will my body become visible. Great joy of preaching! I will now gather together the various Buddhas that are emanations of my body, and that are preaching the law in the worlds in the great ten directions. In other words, if you want to see my body, the Buddha is suggesting, if you want to see the body of a Buddha, then simultaneously, all of the other Buddhas who are replications of this body, meaning anybody who's awake, has to simultaneously preach the Lotus Sutra. Can you imagine this? So then, in order to make this happen... The Buddha then shoots a beam of light out of the tuft of hair between his eyebrows and lights up eighty million worlds. It's actually more than that. It's like uh, 510,000 million nayutas of Ganges sands. A nayuta is a billion. So do you get that? So it's uh, five hundred ten thousand million nayutas. So that's yeah. 510,000 million billion. Is there such a thing in mathematics, Christian? Uh, <laughs> Ganges in. The earth in these lands is made of crystal, the lands adorned with jewels, uh, on and on and on and on and on. So suddenly, in all of these realms, light up. And we've seen this before. So it's a little bit like in your own life when uh, you wake up to something. And you stay awake to something, one of the interesting things that happens is all of the um, uh, light or your ability to see starts shining into every other corner of your life. And for some people this is a really interesting thing, but for most of us it's a kind of torture, right? Because uh, we don't want to see like every crevice, we want to see what we want to see. So what's happening here is the Buddha saying, "Well, when I really look clearly," and this is you know from his third eye, nowadays we've thought that we've reduced what a third eye is to like this thing here that you stare into and get a migraine headache. <laughs> but the third eye is actually a metaphor for being able to see, not with your eyes, you know, being able to really see clearly, Vidya to see and um so the Buddha sees clearly. And then he has to make sure that all the other Buddhas in all the realms can light up also. And so what he does is he has to make a path for them. And he does this with light. So he, it's kind of like landfill. He like creates these psychic landfill structures. And then all the Buddhas come towards him from all over the place. And uh, can you see the movie? Can you see this? Like a beam of light shoots out of his... Uh, Forehead, and then it lights up every possible world, and then the light gets so bright that it actually becomes like a ray that you can walk on, and all these pure beings start walking towards him. This is so not Theravada Buddhism. (laughs) Okay, then suddenly the Buddha of the Ten Directions uh, said, uh, Good people, I I have to go. I have to go to the Saha world, to the place where Shakyamuni Buddha is, and offer alms to the treasure of many treasures thus come one." So this one Buddha, the Buddha of the Ten Directions, um, has to leave suddenly and go to the Saha world. The word Saha means endurance. And it's said that we all live in the Saha world. We live in this world of endurance. Do you ever feel like that? Yeah, it's like, so, In the one place that the light is having a hard time reach, reaching is the Saha world, and it's said that the Saha world is underneath the ocean. So underneath, the, that's a lot of pressure, you know, underneath the floor of the ocean is our world, which is the Saha world, which is this world of endurance. Oh. Okay, so the Buddha is going down to the Saha world, because that's where people really need... Uh, his wisdom and He's building a path for them to also come to the stupa, which is good news for us uh, Okay, and these paths are made of lapis lazuli jeweled trees jeweled trees don't you love that? Uh, ropes of gold marked off with the eight highways There were no villages towns or cities great seas or rivers or mountains streams or forest, but there was incense burning and mandarava flowers covered the ground all over. Um, at that time, each Buddha, each with a great bodhisattva to act as his attendant, arrived. And so, this is nice. So, every Buddha has an attendant, and the attendant's a bodhisattva. So, because the Buddhas, right? It used to be that the Buddhas like the highest you could achieve, but actually, they were still trying to stay in this world of nirvana. So the bodhisattvas had compassion for them, so they attended to them to make sure that they didn't get stuck in their perspective of nirvana. Are any of you like this a little bit, like, I'm going to get enlightened. And if you are really on the path of like intensely trying to get enlightened, there needs to be like some bodhisattva in your life who's saying, come to Passover dinner. It really will be fun and we'll try and cook vegan. But just come and your family misses you so much. And then you're like, no, I'm going to Burma, I'm gonna sit, I'm going to get enlightened. And meanwhile your grandmother, she misses you so much. You know. And uh, anyways, so every Buddha has to have a bodhisattva. Because what do you do when you cry? You know, when you're a Buddha and you cry it's just your tears are so pure. <laughs> Maybe you don 't really feel enough,, you know? so you need a Bodhisattva to rub your back so that you can actually uh, be a human being yeah. that 's what we need in this world, I think you know more people everybody 's so busy trying to get ahead in their career, even their spiritual career, trying to get ahead, trying to get enlightened, and uh, so we need more bodhisattvas people who can just rub your back and, and breathe beside you and just say it's okay. It's this rain is also jeweled. That tree over there is jeweled. Um yeah. So hopefully you have someone like this in your life who's like they don't get your practice and they don't need to and it's good. Really good they don't understand your practice. Okay, so eight erections, everyone's clean, pure, there's no hell. Oh yeah, so it's lit up so brightly that there are no more hungry spirits. Those are the hungry ghosts. And no more asuras. Asuras are like the worst kind of beast. An asura is a beast that is power seeking. So that's considered like the worst kind of monster. Do you have anyone like this in your life? Who's power seeking? This is is worse than, you know, Satan. I don't know if they have a Satan. Okay, so. Shakyamuni Buddha, in order to provide seats for all the Buddhas that were arriving, transformed 210,000 million Nayutas of lands. How many is that? 210,000 million billion of lands in each of the eight directions making them clean and pure without hungry ghosts, without asuras. He lined them with lapis lazuli, on and on and on and on. You've already read this. Um, Then, every Buddha, can you imagine how many Buddhas there are right now? They're all preaching the Lotus Sutra. Meanwhile, there's this stupa that's come out of the ground and is now floating up. There's beams of light everywhere. It's raining down flowers. It's just like a regular day in the Lotus Sutra. (laughs) And um, then the Buddha realizes that everybody needs a seat. Everybody needs a chair. So he creates a lion seat under each person out of jeweled trees. I don't know how you get a lion seat out of jeweled trees, but he did it. And um, the Buddhas then called all their attendants to speak in this manner. Uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, with the fingers of his right hand, opened to the door of the Tower of the Seven Treasures. Suddenly, a loud sound, issues like the sound of a lock and a crossbar being removed from a great city gate. And all at once, the members of the Sangha caught sight of the Buddha of many treasures sitting on a lion seat inside the stupa, with his whole body sitting in perfect meditation. They heard him say, Excellent Shakyamuni Buddha, you have preached the Lotus Sutra in a spirited manner. I have come here so that I can hear the Sutra. So, then the Buddha Many Treasures sits down and says to the Buddha, Come sit with me, and the uh, two of them sit together in the center of this stupa. Uh, Suddenly, when the two Buddhas are sitting there in the center of the stupa, The stupa rises higher, and then every Buddha in the Sangha, so that's you? Do you get the feeling? So every one of you, you suddenly get the feeling. Do you remember what happened when you got the feeling last chapter? You started dancing. This time they start levitating. Okay, so there's like hundreds and billions of Buddhas. Everybody is awake, it's raining flowers and everyone starts levitating. So beautiful. Okay, we're going to do work on this. Um, immediately, last paragraph. Immediately, Shakyamuni Buddha used his transcendental powers to lift all the members of the great assembly up into the air, and in a loud voice, he addressed all the four kinds of believers. Four kinds of believers are monks, nuns, lay men and lay women. So that includes you. Just in case you were worrying that this happened somewhere outside of you. Who is capable of broadly preaching the Lotus Sutra of the wonderful law in the Saha world? Here's the punchline. Now is the time to do so. For being long, the Buddha will enter nirvana. The Buddha will die. The Buddha wishes to entrust the Lotus Sutra of this wonderful Dharma to someone So that it can be preserved. And if you didn't understand that, the whole thing is then repeated in poetry for six, seven pages. That's the end. Wow. So, uh, nobody was nodding, so nobody read it, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, So this whole chapter has had this motivation, which is uh, for you to realize that the Buddha though he may be the eternal imagination of awakening in all of us, also the human Buddha is going to die. And the Buddha is kind of worried, and he wants to know uh, who is going to be able to preach the Lotus Sutra. And he's saying that any Buddha who preaches the Lotus Sutra will create the conditions for this stupa to arise from the earth. So it's been a story inside a story inside a story. Very confusing. Before I keep going, are there any thoughts or confusions or is this connecting or not connecting with anybody? This is the hardest chapter in the text, I also must say. No questions or comments? What comes to mind? Who who's gonna do this? Who's the successor? Yeah. Why would the Buddha have to worry about the successors? Uh Aha. Yeah. Yeah. Why would the Buddha have to worry about a successor? Anybody? Chinese government. The Chinese government, yeah. Well, this was in China. I think the government was pretty supportive at the time. Somebody else? What comes up for you in this chapter? I think the last few chapters, there's kind of echoes of stories that I think show up later in Christianity and other... you know the prodigal son, and mm. yeah. you know I, I just can see echoes of, mm-hmm. of stories that repeat in their For culture. Sure. Yeah, mm. yeah, and that life, death, backwards and forwards, you yeah. know, um, relationship that even happens in the New Testament. Yeah, I mean maybe that, <laughs> maybe what you're speaking about is but a nature. I mean, maybe, and I'm stretching a little bit by saying this, but, you know, maybe if we think about Buddha nature as the storyteller and that the storyteller is liberated when he or she is free, well, it's genderless, and the storyteller is free to then uh, create stories out of the conditions of the culture. But then also we know that when we look at different cultures, we see similar patterns in the stories, or what, you know, the Jungians would call archetypes. And um, Or what Joseph Campbell calls, you know, like the hero with a thousand faces. That you see these same patterns repeating in so many different kinds of cultures. These kind of undercurrents that are in all of us. That are human patterns. And maybe that is what's been sewed into all of our uh, coats. And maybe that capacity for imagination as a human being is the birth of religion. And maybe religion was born when language was invented because uh, you can't deal in representation without language. So maybe, like in human history, and I don't know how anyone could ever see if this was true, but maybe religion was invented at the same time language was invented, when you had some kind of way of representing your reality uh, through some kind of vocabulary and uh, image form. And then this happened all over human civilizations that weren't even connected. And then they developed these stories because we all have in us this storyteller that is both uh, the ground that you fall on and get hurt on and the ground that you need to be able to stand up again. And maybe this is what our Buddha nature is. So maybe actually for those of you to bring it back down to the level of everyday life, Maybe this thinking that you've been trying to uh, avoid, or that you've been trying to get away from, or somebody in meditation class on Saturday said, "I just wanted to go blank," and it's hard to actually see that "I just wanted to go blank" is a construct, right? Or that the idea that it can go blank is creating the "it" as a construct. That belongs to you. And that there is a blank. Which is another construct. That you've inherited. And where did you get this idea? It's, well, it's an idea around in the culture. From people who don't have a lot of wisdom. you know. Because we're suffering. And we're suffering so much here. So we create a story. That everything can go blank. And so maybe wisdom is this practice. Of having enough insight. That you can see that you can't just blank out. Or that you already now are blanked out. And that's why, like, if we can just stretch a little bit to imagine that this Buddha nature in us is not some sparkling awakened, you know, cloud or, or place with virgins and, you know, whatever. Um, but actually that it's the place of delusion. And it's the, our, our capacity for our imagination to meet our delusions, which is what we're creating space for. So that's why meditation and, and art go so well together. Because when you can have spaciousness in your awareness, and you're not just a puppet, then there's enough space for fresh ideas to come from for, forward. Uh, big fish to show up, rather than just being like caught by all the small ideas that you think are so unique and that, you know, are original. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we all know this when we create, when we make things, that there's a feeling that you didn't do it. That's why intellectual copyright is such a joke. Because, I mean, in a way, you, you did it and you didn't do it. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. So, um, I don't know, how, how did we get down to that or something? Stories. Stories, yeah, religion, language. <laughs> Someone else. Preaching. Preach yeah. yeah. yeah, all these amazing things happen to anybody who teaches this teaching, uh-huh. and that I don't know that sits kind of oddly with me. Yeah. And and it appeared in it's appeared in a few of the past chapters as mm-hmm. well. Like there's just like the gifts, the benevolence, the stupas, the jewels, like yeah. all these mm-hmm. other Buddhas will be with you. You're uh-huh. gonna to have too. Uh-huh. If you if you teach or preach this. Particular. Right. Yeah, and do you get the joke? Well, we're in chapter ten, and we I still haven't heard out the out lotus sutra. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, maybe this whole book is just a ritual object for you to be able to experience faith, um, to have faith in um, this reality that it's is jeweled phantom city, that keeps being is to teach the teaching yeah. yeah that every construct that you create in your imagination is a phantom city so you need to have some faith yeah. and then of course the mind immediately goes oh faith in an object then there's a subject having faith in an object and then we create a whole new phantom city <laughs> do you get the trick? Yeah. It's like if you don't have any, um, peyote or something, then you just open the text and read anywhere. <laughs> and it's the same message over and over Is seeing, and we talked about this in the asana class the past couple of weeks, is just seeing how your mind is always trying to, uh, create a formula out of your experience. So... As the storyteller starts to dissolve and the world comes forth then your mind begins to dissolve and then as soon as it's in the last phase of dissolving it has a defense mechanism that comes in that prevents dissolution by creating a formula or a technique that encompasses what you just experienced in a whole new formula which is what we call religion. And then, so your job is to have a technique that can see how your mind is producing formulas to create scaffolding on your experience. And then to see how you confuse the scaffolding for the experience. That the scaffolding is the phantom city, and it goes by the name of religion, or capitalism, or pacifism, or any ism and all those isms eventually become um, wrong eventually become phantom cities and maybe you've had isms in your life that you've followed and really believed in and then you realize that it's just scaffolding and then this is actually where pleasure comes from but the good kind of pleasure because uh, the teaching is also both in the yoga and buddhist tradition that the greatest love or pleasure that you can feel is the pleasure of letting go. So you think that the object that you're going after because of the ideals you have is going to give you the ultimate pleasure. And this is the illusion of nirvana. That if you just practice in a certain way, you will hit this stream where you will experience bliss out, man. Right, everybody wants that. Like I just want it to stop. Have you? Has anyone got that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just want to bliss out. You know. And um, then you realize that actually there there is no thing that can create the conditions for your bliss out. And then everybody who's a connoisseur of anything knows this, right? That like, what you love is the I, image of the object. That's so great. But then you have to let go of the image to actually have the experience. So actually the pleasure comes from the letting go of the image in order to have the experience. Or some people, they can't let go of the image. Can you, can you, can you, you know, I mean, people who are addicted to something, you know, they're like addicted to this story of something, and they're monotheists. They only have this one story, and then they can't actually experience the thing that that story is promising, because they can't drop the story. Yeah, it's like if you liked wine, and you were, you know so much about French wine from one particular region, and you become a snob, and you know you go to drink the wine. You know so much that you can't actually like have the experience. That the beginner has. So the yogi, they just see the image and the construct around it. And then they practice uh, avyasa and vairagya, which is just letting go. The practice of letting go. And in the practice of letting go, they experience the pleasure of non-attachment. Which is a deeper pleasure than you can get from the object. And that's the phantom city. And that's the Lotus Sutra. Because it brings you back to here. And this is sacred. This is the stupa. This is jeweled. This is really beautiful. This is just vibration. It's pure love. It's pure consciousness. But um, you can't allow that because you have to make it into a formula. And we just go from formula to formula. (laughs) You know, like boyfriend to boyfriend. (laughs) Oh, that one was really, oh no. Next one, you know. Yeah. And then one day, maybe after 40, you realize, oh my god, I've been turning the same person into this person. (laughs) You know? And then uh, in the dropping that, then there's this experience of relationship, which is so threatening to your formula. So, anyways, that's the Lotus Sutra. So, why is it so? We need a successor. We need someone to point this out. And they're saying, but anybody can point it out when they're preaching the Lotus Sutra. And who can preach the Lotus Sutra? Only a Buddha and a Buddha. So in other words, you can only hear the Lotus Sutra if there's a Buddha and a Buddha present. So that part of me that can't drop the image can't hear the Lotus Sutra. But when that part of me that's a Buddha is there with a Buddha, relationship, so good, then there's a Lotus Sutra. So the Lotus Sutra is conditional on there being a Buddha and a Buddha. It's kind of beautiful, I think. And to keep in mind that in English the word is Lotus Sutra, but actually the proper translation of it is the the flowering dharma. The dharma flowering. So anyways, Mm -hmm. Any other comments or questions and then i read one thing and then we'll... So is that really mean he needs two successors then? Uh, just one because as long as there's one other Buddha that will one day hear it. He just has to hear it. Yeah. Let me think about that, that's a good, good point. Yeah. Seems like maybe there's a bit of a play between Phantom City and Flower and Dharma. City is something that is constructed and, and built uh-huh. and flowering anything that's flowering is under yeah. constant change. Yeah. Um, and that maybe they oscillate back and forth between yeah.
1: the S- reification
0: of the flowering idea, which becomes something that is the Phantom City. Mm-hmm. And then getting back to the sort of spirit or the energy of that. Yeah. You revealing the Buddha in both characters. Yeah. and of course anything can be reified. A flower can be reified, the dharma can be reified, the Buddha can be reified, nirvana can be reified. <laughs> yeah. Anyone else? Just in response to the yeah. I also think in terms of the construct, that's, uh, that's static, that's just there, whereas the, the flowering dharma is evolving and it's, I would say, organic, so, which is, again, maybe the experience, Just is never the same. mm mm-hmm. What strikes me is that what I liked most of, or what I resonated most with, was the whole idea of all of buddhas having bodhisattvas, you know, that keep them really human, <laughs> that rub their backs when they cry, yeah. and that kind of thing. And it just, Reminds me that, you know, if you see the Buddha on the path, kill the Buddha. It's like, yeah. kill the idea of this thing that yeah. actually is limiting, that is, you know, death, really. Yeah. That's that's what we're mourning. You know, mm-hmm. That's the funeral, as the image, or like you yeah. were saying. Yeah. Of what we think, where we think we should go, yeah. where we should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to call them bubby sattvas. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. And they're like... They're just there in your ear all the time going, I love you, I love you. <laughs> and it's like, you can't hear, you can't hear. And you have to like run away and do all kinds of things and like being like back here and sending cards sometimes. And then finally you're like, oh my God, they've been saying I love you for so long. And they've been attending everything, which is so annoying, you know, they, I don't want them to attend this. Book launch, you know, and they show up, you know, and they, so they're your attendant. Yeah. Maybe that's why it's so nerve wracking when you introduce a lover to your grandmother <laughs> because, uh, you know, sh- she'll tell you what she thinks, and it's always true, it's a prophecy. <laughs> We should do that next week, we should have just like share stories about when we've introduced family members to our grandmothers <laughs> or grandfathers, <laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> um, I'm going to read something from Adam Phillips talking about Wallace Stevens, uh, he starts off by quoting a poem by Wallace Stevens, the brilliance of the earth is the brilliance of every paradise so good. The brilliance of the earth is the brilliance of every paradise. You can only imagine, a, this is the problem with the Lotus Sutra's imagination, is you can only imagine what's unimaginable through the vocabulary you have for what's imaginable, or for what's unimaginable. Right? It's like how some, you know, you could say there's, you can't imagine the future, because you can only imagine the future with material from the past. So your image of the future is only uh, from past experience. Wallace Stevens wrote, and one can only write the poems of the earth as Darwin and Freud did if one is happily convinced that there is nowhere else to go. Which is, I think, what you just said. When transience is not merely an occasion for mourning, we will have inherited the earth. And it was at inheriting the earth making sense of our lives as bound by mortality, not seduced by transcendence, by afterlives, that they work so prodigiously. They wanna teach us to let time pass. It is the consequence, if not always the intention of both Darwin and Freud's writing, to make our lives hospitable to the passing of time and the inevitability of death and yet to sustain an image of the world as a place of interest, a place to love. See, talking about the Lotus Sutra It's so brilliant. We talked about this last week, to replace these ideas of transcendence with, with the, the craft of making a life, of enjoying a life, of letting the earth be a place that's of interest, of seeing how everything you think is not fascinating, is jeweled. And then you can really um, um, be in time. The last thing this scholar said about Japan is that Japan does not have an apocalyptic imagination because every time they build something, they expect it to be destroyed. So every major town in Japan for the last 1,300 years has been destroyed by an earthquake. So this person was talking about how in Japanese literature it's only in the last 50 years that there has been fiction that deals with apocalypse. Because previously, whenever something was created, there was just the idea that it was going to be um, knocked over. Uh, I don't know, maybe we can learn something from that. Maybe you just need to look at cherry blossoms more closely. So, let's finish chanting.